Welcome to the North Shore Church audio podcast. To find out more information about North Shore Church, please visit us at mynsag.com. We hope you enjoy today's message. If you have your Bibles, open it up to Ruth chapter 3. Ruth chapter 3, we're in a series that we're calling Redeemed. And uh, what we're doing is we're going right through the book of Ruth. We're reading it verse by verse. We're just letting the narrative sort of drive the messages. And we're just reading a little bit, talking about Scripture, reading a little bit, talking about Scripture, and um, just kind of seeing what the Holy Spirit would reveal to us uh, through this Scripture. If you've been here with us the last couple of weeks, you know that this is more than just a good story. It's a gospel story. And we see, like, the redemptive purposes of Jesus in our lives through this Old Testament story. And it's just so, so encouraging. And so if you haven't been with us the last couple of weeks, um, because this does play out in, in narrative form, uh, I will, I'll, I'll go back and I'll give you a quick recap of what's happening. Um, so uh, this story starts out with uh, this little town of Bethlehem, and there is a famine in the town of Bethlehem. There's no rain, there's no food, and in that town there's a man, his name is Elimelech. His name actually means my God is king, but never once in this story does he really act like his God is king. And so because there's a famine in the land, he moves his family from Bethlehem, from the place of God's blessing, from God's people, into the nation of Moab. Now Moab was a pagan nation, they served demonic gods or a demonic god named Chemosh who required human sacrifice. And the, the good thing about Moab, at least for Elimelech, was that there was money there, there was food, there was opportunity for career advancement. And what he did was he moved his family from Bethlehem to Moab to preserve life and legacy. But what we see in scripture is that two, three verses later, he and his boys died. And so Naomi is left, his wife, Naomi, is left in Moab with two Moabite daughters-in-law. Well, Naomi hears that there is food back in Bethlehem, and so she decides to go back to Bethlehem, the place of God's people, the place of God's blessings, and Ruth, her Moabite daughter-in-law, decides to go with her. Ruth loves Naomi. Ruth is, is, is just, just a, a great daughter-in-law to Naomi, and Ruth decides she is no longer interested in serving Chemosh. She wants to serve Jehovah God, the God of Naomi, the God of Bethlehem, uh, the, the God that we serve, and she's going to commit her life and everything to God, even though she's going to a foreign land for her that's going to be somewhat uncomfortable. Well, they just so happen to get back to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest, and Ruth decides, decides to go out and glean behind the harvesters. Gleaning was the Israelite welfare system that said, if you come behind the harvesters and everything that they cut and accidentally drop to the ground, they're going to leave there. And if you're willing to work really, really hard, you can pick up some scraps and, and, and you can have enough to eat that day. And then you'll come back out the next day and you'll glean some more to eat that day. So it was the Israelite welfare system. Well, it just so happens that Naomi or Ruth rather ends up in Boaz's field. And it just so happens that Boaz is a kind, generous, wealthy man that loves the Lord. He really loves the Lord. He doesn't just attend church on Sunday. Like he loves the Lord and he lives it. And it just so happens that Boaz notices Ruth. And, and I feel like he probably saw a little bit of his mother in Ruth because Boaz's mother was Rahab. If you know anything about scripture, you know that Rahab was the prostitute living in Jericho. And when the two Israelite spies came in to spy out Jericho, she was the one who, who basically hid them. 
and she hung a scarlet cord in her, in her room so that when the Israelites came in and invaded Jericho, Rahab was the only survivor. Rahab was the only survivor in that battle of Jericho, and she was a foreigner living in Israel, and they sort of adopted her in as a foreigner into sort of the lifeblood of Israel. And so I wonder if Boaz didn't see a little bit of his mother in Ruth, and, um, and sort of like his heart went out to her. And so he goes up to her, he talks to her, he prays with her, he blesses her, he um, gives her a job, he makes sure all the men in the, in the field know to kind of look out for her. The first day as she was gleaning, he told his men to bundle up a bunch of barley, tie it up, make it real nice and tight and easy to carry, and drop it at her feet so that she can officially glean it and pick it up. And just blessed her, gave her a job, paid her way more than what she was worth, and essentially said to her, you come and work in my field, you work behind the harvesters, you are not going to be a foreigner in this field, you are going to be family. Well, it, what, what looks like the makings of, of, a, of a romantic relationship here, because Boaz is single, and she's single, and, and it kind of just starts like, man, it feels like something is, is, is going here, and it's like the moment in the movie where like the, the, the butterflies begin to kind of twitter around, and the romantic music plays, and, and you're sort of going to get this romance montage. It just fizzles out. It doesn't go anywhere. Harvest is coming to an end, and um, that's a bad thing because their proximity to each other is, is going to change very shortly, so they're not going to be able to grow this relationship. And so that's the end of chapter two. That brings us to chapter three. Now, chapter three is a really, really strange chapter, okay? It's just odd. And, and I, I, I should have titled this message chapter three because I believe that we all have a chapter three in our life. That we all have this moment, this story, this piece of our life that we want to keep hidden, that, that we want to downplay, that, that we want to, to sort of, when we tell our story or when, when God sort of reviews our story, we want to rip those pages out because we're not super proud of some of the things that we did. We're not super proud of the decisions. Now, in, in Ruth and Naomi's case, I mean, they have that time in Moab, but that was the past, and, and, and that was sort of before God is doing a redemptive work inside of them, and, and now that they're back in Bethlehem, they're supposed to be Christians. They're supposed to be believers. They're supposed to be making the right decisions and doing the right things. And all of us have these chapter threes in our life that when we commit our life to Jesus, when we're, when we're back on track, when we're out of Moab and, and not running and rebelling from God anymore, but, but living right and righteous, we all have those moments where we, we, sort of, we, we sort of revert back to those old ways and those old Moabite traditions and those old, old ways of thinking. And, and then we look at ourselves and we're like, what am I doing? doing. This, this, this doesn't reflect Christ at all. And this is what's happening here in chapter three. It's very weird. It's just a weird chapter because it kind of looks a little bit like a marriage proposal and it kind of looks a little bit like something else, something kind of scandalous, a midnight hookup, you know, slash booty call. I said it in the first service and so I'll say it again. But, uh, but I know you're not supposed to say that in church, so forgive me, but that's what it looks like, Okay. So here we are, we're in chapter three, and um, we're just gonna read all of chapter three, and then we're gonna struggle through this together, okay? We're gonna struggle to make sense of this. We're gonna waffle back and forth as to what's really happening here together. This is a chapter that as I'm, I'm preparing these messages, it'd be like, it'd be nice to skip over this one, but man, God in his grace, in his redemptive purposes, doesn't allow us to skip over those bad parts in our life. Now listen, because we pretend that God 
Um, we, we pretend that we are better than what we really are, but God knows that we're not. And we don't go on sinning so that God's grace can be proficient because that's just dumb. We don't pretend that we're better than what we are because that makes God's grace less than what it really is. And so there are times where we have to live in this freedom and live in, the, in this openness that, yeah, we, we messed up and, yeah, we screwed up, but God's redemptive, redemptive purposes are still strong in our life and he is still powerful and he's proved that in my life and he's proved that in your life and isn't God gracious and isn't he worthy to be praised because he never abandons us when we're in Moab making terrible decisions he doesn't abandon us and when we're in Bethlehem when we're supposed to have our act together and we still mess up he doesn't abandon us isn't he good isn't he good so let's read chapter three and let's kind of get some context and let's um, uh, go through this together verse one it says this one day Naomi said to Ruth my daughter it's time that I find a permanent home for you so that you will be provided for Boaz is a close relative of ours, and he's been very kind by letting you gather grain with his young women. Tonight he will be winnowing barley at the threshing floor. Verse 3, now listen to this. Now do as I tell you, she says. Take a bath and put on perfume and dress in your nicest clothes. Then go to the threshing floor, but don't let Boaz see you until he finished eating and drinking. Be sure to notice where he lies down, then go and uncover his feet and lie down there. He will tell you what to do. Like this is risque business, Okay. It's not risky business, it is risque business. Like, this is really, really weird. Like Naomi is telling Ruth, okay, Ruth, it's time to find you a man. Let's get you married. Um, uh, there, there are some translations that say we are going to, we are going to uh, uh, well, she says it later, so I'll tell you later. But uh, she says, um, oh, we are going to find you a man. We're going we're gonna to get you married off. We're going to look at finding you a real legacy. And, um, boy, we are just going to, to find that place of God's blessing. We're going to get you married. Now, she says to Ruth, Go get showered up, put on that hot little dress that you got from Moab, put the perfume on, get that Moabite midnight perfume, you know the one, spray that all over, wait till Boaz falls asleep, spy on him, hang out in the dark, watch him, and when he goes to bed and goes to sleep, go get in his bed with him, and when he wakes up, just do whatever he tells you to do. That's, that's the advice that Naomi gives. Now, first off, just because it's in the Bible doesn't mean that it's biblical advice. Amen? Okay? This is a strange part of the story. It's not a blueprint to find a man. L listen, if you're looking for a man, this is one way to find a man, but it's not the kind of man that you want to be with. Yes? Amen? Come on. But this is what she says in verse 5. Ruth replies, I will do everything you say. So she went down to the threshing floor that night and followed the instructions of her mother-in-law. After Boaz had finished eating and drinking and was in good spirits, he lay down at the far end of the pile of grain and went to sleep. Then Ruth came quietly in. She creeps in like a ninja. I mean, in, in high heels, right? She's all stealthy in stilettos. That's what I should have titled this message. Stealthy in stilettos. That's good. I'm going to remember that for next time. That's good. That's, that's like divine inspiration, isn't it? <clears throat> And so she creeps in like a ninja. She uncovers his feet. There's some debate on what actually that means. We'll talk about that later. And she lays down. 
Around midnight, Boaz suddenly woke up and turned over. He was surprised to find a woman laying at his feet. Who are you? He said, I am your servant, Ruth. She replied, spread the corner of your covering over me, for you are my family redeemer. So what she's saying in this is, I'm Ruth. Remember me. I want you to marry me. Like, like you aren't proposing to me, so I'm proposing that you propose to me, right? There are some guys that just don't get it, so you got to make it crystal clear. And so that's what Ruth is doing. She's proposing that Boaz propose. She's like, hey, man, let's... let's Make me your wife. That's exactly what she's saying here. Verse 10. The Lord bless you, my daughter, Boaz exclaimed. You are showing even more family loyal, loyalty now than you did before, for you have not gone after a younger man, whether rich or poor. Now, don't worry about a thing, my daughter. I will do what is necessary, for everyone in town knows you are a virtuous woman. She's not acting like a very virtuous woman at this point, but, but Boaz is like reminding her, like, you're a virtuous woman. Let's, let's not forget that right now. But while it's true that I am one of your family redeemers, there is another man who is more closely related to you than I am. Stay here tonight, and in the morning I will talk to him. If he is willing to redeem you, very well, let him marry you. But if he is not willing, then as surely as the Lord lives, I will redeem you myself. Now lie down here until morning. Verse 14. So Ruth lay at Boaz's feet until the morning, but she got up before it was light enough for people to recognize each other. For Boaz had said, no one must know that a woman was here at the threshing floor. Then Boaz said to her, bring your cloak and spread it out. He measured six scoops of barley in the cloak and placed it on her back, not in her hands, but on her back because it was a ton of barley. Then he returned to town. Verse 16, when Ruth went back to her mother-in-law, Naomi asked, what happened, my daughter? Um, some translations say she was asking, what's your name? Like, like, like is, this, is this happening? And can, can we identify you as something else? Like, what's your legacy going to be? What's your name? Ruth told Naomi everything Boaz had done for her. They still hadn't settled on anything. Boaz hadn't proposed, um, but things are moving. And she added, he gave me these six scoops of barley and said, don't go back to your mother-in-law empty-handed. Then Naomi said to her, just be patient, my daughter, until we hear what happens. The man won't rest until he has settled things today. Super weird chapter, right? Just odd. It's strange. This is the chapter that when you're doing devotions with your family, you don't allow your kids to ask questions, right? You just don't. Like, Mom, why was Ruth getting all dressed? Don't worry about it. It's time for bed. Let's wrap up. We'll do a different one tomorrow. Like, we'll talk about Moses, okay? But it's just, it's just weird. So we have to kind of struggle through this together. And so let's do that. Let's try to answer a few questions here to make sense of this, this craziness, all right? So the first question that we're going to try to answer is why? Why? This seems fairly straightforward, fairly easy. Naomi wants Ruth to have a husband. Ruth, it's time to find you a man, a permanent home, a name, a legacy. We're, we're going to get you taken care of, somebody who will provide for you. Now, I, I think probably Naomi is meddling a little bit here. She's, a, she's the age of a grandma, but she doesn't have any grandkids, and she doesn't have anybody to spoil, so she's getting a little antsy, and she's like, Ruth, you know, we got to get you married so I can have grandbabies, because it's my divine right as a, as a grandma to take care of grandbabies. And there are some women who think that it's their gift and their calling in life to uh, set single people up, and maybe this is Naomi. Maybe she just thinks she's a matchmaker and trying to set people up, but... There does seem to be a little bit of selfish motivation in this as well because Ruth and Naomi are connected. They are intertwined. 
Ruth made a covenant with Naomi that she says, where you go, I'm going to go. Um, where you live, I'm going to live. Where you die, I'm going to die. Uh, the God you serve is the God that I'm going to serve. And so they are connected forever so that whatever happens to Ruth is going to happen to Naomi and whatever happens to Naomi is going to happen to Ruth. So if, if Ruth marries a worthy man, it is going to radically affect Naomi as well. And so there may have been some selfish motivation. So Naomi says, hey, we're going to find you a man. We're going to get you married. And our crosshairs are set on Boaz. He's, he's in the line of fire. We're going to go get Boaz. And so that's essentially what she's saying. Why Boaz? Again, this is fairly straightforward because Boaz is the best of men. He's a worthy man. He's kind. He's generous. He moves beyond the bare minimum requirements of the law and operates in extravagant Christ-centered grace. He's single, which is, you know, a necessity. He's wealthy, and he really, really loves the Lord. Boaz is the right choice because he's the best kind of guy. They weren't wrong in setting their sights on Boaz, okay? Another reason why Boaz is because he was a close relative and a family redeemer. Now, there's some cultural context that we have to understand in order to make sense of this story and what's happening. So we need to explain who the family redeemers are and what their role and their job was. So in those days, when the Israelites uh, left Egyptian slavery from Egypt and, and God brought them back into the land of Canaan or to the promised land, the land that he had, he had declared is going to be their inheritance, when they got there, he divided the land. God divided the land amongst the people of Israel. He divided the land tribe by tribe, clan by clan, family by family. And so in those days, land was everything. And, and the land was tied very, very closely to the family. Your land was your future. Your land was your legacy. And so it was very important to keep your portion of land inside your family. But in that era, just like every era, there are times where trouble comes, where people make bad choices. Maybe you make the foolish choice of leaving Bethlehem, selling your land, and going to Moab to make a bunch of money, but it just doesn't work out. Maybe uh, you did something illegal and lost the rights to your land. Um, maybe things just weren't going well, so you sold your land and yourself as sort of indentured slavery to somebody else because you just weren't making ends Meet. And so, so what they would do is, is they would sort of lose access to their land that was theirs. But the land, no matter what circumstance happened, the land was still a part of their divine God-given inheritance. Okay, So land was a part of their divine inheritance and freedom was a part of their divine inheritance too. It, it was given to them by God. They didn't earn it. They didn't fight for it. They didn't work for it. God gave them their freedom. Even when they were in Egypt and, and Moses came and they were grumbling and complaining and making it harder on Moses the whole time, God still gave them their freedom. And then while they were griping and complaining all throughout uh, the desert, God gave the people their land. So this is a gift from God. It is, it is a part of their divine inheritance. Okay, So as we look at this and we try to relate this back to us, I, I, I look and I begin to realize that there are some of you here this morning that don't realize that God has given you a divine inheritance. It's not just for the people of God in Scripture. It is for the people of God. Okay, You have access to a divine inheritance. Now listen, it's an inheritance that nobody can take from you. 
It's an inheritance that nobody can steal from you. It's an inheritance of, of freedom. It's an inheritance of salvation. It's an inheritance of membership into the family of God. But what happens sometimes is, is you and I uh, begin to turn our back on that inheritance and we, we reject that inheritance. And in that day, if a person or family found themselves in a difficult situation and they lost ownership of their land or, or their freedom, then a person with the title of a family redeemer could come in and pay off the debt and buy the land back so that it could stay inside the family. Now, if a family redeemer came and said to somebody who owned the land, look, I wanna buy this back because I'm the redeemer, I wanna set these people free, that person had to sell. They had to sell. It was the law. They had to sell that land back. They couldn't say, you know what? I, I'm doing pretty well on myself. I don't think I'm going to sell. I'm going to hold on to this. They didn't have that right. They had to sell that back. And so when the family redeemer came, they would redeem the land. And when they would buy back the land, they would redeem, set free, all of those who are in slavery connected to the land. So when the land was redeemed, the family was redeemed with it because the family and the land were intertwined and the Redeemer would come and set everything right. Again, this isn't just a good story, it's a gospel story. It reflects the heart of God, it reflects the purpose of Jesus in our life and in our world. The heart of God is that of a Redeemer. Jesus came to be our Redeemer. Think about this, in, in the beginning, in the Garden of Eden, our divine inheritance, something that we didn't earn, we didn't fight for, we didn't work for, but it was a divine inheritance, it was given to us by God, was a personal and intimate relationship with him in a perfect environment. Like there was no weeds, no sin, it was just a perfect environment. What happened when sin came into the world, sin caused mankind to lose access to that divine inheritance. We, we, we lost the perfect environment and we, we lost the personal and intimate relationship with God that he had freely given to us. Though it was still our inheritance, because the enemy can never steal your inheritance, right? We just didn't have access to it. We didn't have the rights to it. And so God sends Jesus as our redeemer. And this is what Jesus does. Jesus buys back. He restores Listen, Jesus purchases again with his blood that which God had given to us freely in the first part. So God gives us a divine inheritance. We lose access to it through sin. And Jesus comes in and pays for with his blood again what God has given to us freely. This is a gospel story and this is exactly what's happening in the book of Ruth here. So because Boaz was a relative of Elimelech, he was on the list as a potential family redeemer. That means that if Boaz comes in and redeems the land, he redeems Naomi and Ruth with it. That means he has to marry Ruth and have a baby with Ruth so that Elimelech's family line can continue. So the second question is what? This question is a little bit more difficult to answer because what exactly is going on here? What exactly is Naomi telling Ruth to do? Because it would appear that the sparkle is back in Naomi's eye. She's not bitter anymore. She's happy. She's kind of excited to be back in Bethlehem, the place of blessing, the place of God's people. She's well taken care of and well provided for. God is blessing Ruth and blessing Naomi. Things are going really, really well. But there still seems to be some lingering effects of Elimelech's leadership, Elimelech's poor leadership in her life. 
Because as she looks around, she can see that God is sweet and she can see the invisible hand of, of God working in their life and becoming very visible. But as God is moving, she doesn't feel like God is moving fast enough. Have you ever felt that in your life? Like you can see God is moving, but man, he's lagging. He needs to hustle up with some of this stuff. So that's what's going on. And she sees God moving, but he's not moving fast enough. So, so Naomi, like her husband, Elimelech, decides she's going to take matters into her own hands. She doesn't pray about it. She doesn't wait. She doesn't seek godly counsel. She doesn't read the scripture. Rather, she just begins to act. And this is her plan. Like we just read it. Get all dressed up, look, smell really nice. Go jump into bed with Boaz and say, you know, you tell me what to do from here. Verse 4, she says, then go and uncover his feet and lie down there. He will tell you what to do. There's a lot of debate on what this actually means, on what Naomi is suggesting. Many commentaries really try to dance around this verse because it's, it's uncomfortable. We don't want our Bible heroes to have flaws. And even today, we don't want our, our, our Christian heroes to have flaws. We don't want our pastors to have flaws. We don't want our grandparents who love the Lord to have flaws. We don't want our evangelists to have flaws. We just want to pretend that they're perfect, right? And so it, so it becomes really uncomfortable. And so, <clears throat> excuse me, reading some of these commentaries, some of them will, will say things like, you know what, Naomi is a very righteous woman. Um, she loves the Lord. She wouldn't do anything to um, offend the Lord. And so she's not actually suggesting what you guys think she's suggesting. So get your minds out of the gutter and don't even think that. Like there's some commentaries that, that read that way. But then they don't explain why all the sneaking around? Why the hiding in the dark? Why getting all dolled up? Like why all of that? There are other commentaries that will suggest that uncover his feet is a euphemism for something else something very mature, like something very adult here and very scandalous. And, and I know that's probably offensive, but, but like I said before, um, what we need to come to realize is that when we try to hide our flaws and pretend that we're better than what we are, we diminish Christ's gospel-centered, redemptive, saving grace work in our life, Right? Because what we, we try to say that, that we're this and we're great and, and we're this and we barely need a savior, right? When the reality is God is good when there is nothing good in me, right? There's nothing, I'm, 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 I don't just barely need a savior. Like I didn't almost make the line, I just barely missed it. I don't need a little boost, I need a savior, and we try to pretend that we're better than what we are uh, because, you know, we think that it's honoring God. But the reality is, it's all God's work in our life. And without him and without his redemptive grace, without sending Jesus to be our Savior, to wash us flee, to, to wash us completely clean, we would have no opportunity for access with Jesus. So there's just a massive amount of freedom that comes when we can identify and expose our faults and flaws. And, and we aren't fooling God anyway. I don't think we need to stand up here and confess every horrible thing that we say, think, or do. But we gotta stop pretending that we're better than what we really are. So regardless of what you think is really happening here in this portion, this portion of the story, this is bad advice. It's a bad move. It's shady. It's scandalous. It creates plenty of opportunity for sin. 
Not only is it a bad advice, like what we can see, but what we can infer. Like there were wild animals around, and, and to ask Ruth to go, you know, gallivanting off in the countryside at night, you know, with wild animals is just a dangerous move. David, remember, when he was living in Bethlehem, when he was a shepherd, he killed with his bare hands a bear and a lion. So there's wild animals, potential for danger there. She was also sending Ruth all dolled up, you know, to a threshing floor with a bunch of men there. And, and there are, are some places that suggest that some, some of the, the prostitutes of the day would come to the threshing floor because this was like a great big party time, an opportunity to make some money. People's inhibitions were down, and so, so you know, sinful things would happen there. And if Ruth showed up at this party looking for a good time, there, there was some potential for some men to, to hurt, rape, take advantage, you know, murder, whatever sort of bad things uh, could have happened in that situation if, if she found herself there accidentally. So lots of potential for things to go horribly wrong, um, let alone it would destroy her reputation, Boaz's reputation. This was a scandal in the making regardless of, of what the intention was. So we know that this story works out in the end, and there is a wedding and a baby like we mentioned last week, and we'll look at more closely next week. But it wasn't because of this advice and this midnight conversation. It was in spite of it. And we know that God is still able to move in his providence in spite of our chapter threes. Amen? Because even when we're doing our best to serve and worship God, we sometimes find ourselves in chapter three. And God doesn't bring about his good and perfect will because of chapter three. Chapter three is in there to show us that even when we still mess up, God is still good. He is still good. And as, the believe, as believers, we don't have the right to operate with the attitude that the end justifies the means. God desires that we walk in his will and his ways. Okay? Well, we can't get to God's will by circumventing his ways. If we walk in God's ways, we will end up and in his will. And we can never sin our way into God's will. We can't sin our way into God's will. God can, can redeem our sin and still bring about his good and perfect will, but we cannot sin our way into his will. So let's answer this last question. The last question is how. How Boaz responds to this inappropriate encounter is going to be the most important question to answer. In fact, Ruth and Naomi's entire future hangs on Boaz's response. So again, let's look at this. Verse eight, around midnight, Boaz suddenly wakes up, sees a gorgeous woman in his bed. He's surprised to find a woman laying at his feet. Who are you, he asks. Ruth says, it's me, Ruth. Spread the corner of your covering over me, for you are my family redeemer. Again, it's in this moment that Ruth makes her intentions crystal clear. I'm proposing, Boaz, that you propose to me. Boaz was a worthy man. Scripture tells us this over and over again. He was a worthy man. And in this late night, midnight, sort of potentially sexually charged, inappropriate encounter, when no one else is around, and nobody would know what you're doing there, Boaz still maintains his integrity. He is still a worthy man. And that's important for the rest of the story. And that there are three things that 
in his response that identify a worthy person. And, and I want to focus on those in the last 14 minutes that we have here today. So we're going to look at these. Number one, a worthy person will wait. A worthy person will wait. Boaz, or Ruth says to Boaz, I want to marry you. Boaz is essentially saying, that's awesome. That makes me so glad. I, I'm so excited that you want to do that. Boaz didn't even think he had a chance with her. I mean, in his response, he says, like, I'm old. I didn't figure you would want an old guy like me. Like, this is awesome. I want to marry you too, but we aren't married yet. Let me say this again. But we aren't married yet. Okay, in, in our culture today, that concept, but we aren't married yet, doesn't even exist. In fact, most of the advice that, that people are given today is, hey, before you get married, act like you are. And so spend a couple, two or three years acting like you're married so that way you know that if your marriage is going to work. That's the, that's the prevailing thought and that's the prevailing instruction of the day. Don't say we're not married yet. Pretend that you're married. Act like you're married so that you know if your marriage is going to work. And that's not the way that God works. That's not the place of God's blessing. That's not a, that's not a relationship that is going to bring honor to God, Okay? Even in our church world, we don't use that line, we aren't married yet. And so this is what Boaz does. This is how he responds, verse 10. He prays for her. He says, the Lord bless you, my daughter. Kind of puts the brakes on in the entire situation. And so, and so I mean, you think about this. You think, like, like, if you're single in this place, like you're in a dating relationship, and, and maybe, you know, he or she kind of begins to kind of, you find yourself in that moment where, like, there's, there's butterflies that, that are, are doing, like, weird things in your body. And, um, like, like you, you can feel sort of the, the, the sexual temperature in the room raising. And you're like, uh-oh, like, I'm going to have to make a decision here, and I don't know if I'm strong enough to, to make the right decision. I know what God wants me to do do, but I know what I want to do and what God wants me to do and what I want to do are different. And so I really, really, you know, and, and so the next time you find yourself in sort of that, that, that place, high schoolers, listen to me, uh, college people, listen to me. And the next time you find yourself in that place where you have to make a decision, do this, pray out loud, right? <laughs> Say, hey, before we, before we go any further, let me do this. Can we just bow our heads and close our eyes? Dear Lord, I pray that you would just bless us and like, like just be here with us and let your Holy Spirit just come and surround us in this place. Man, you're going to pour spiritual cold water on that real fast, right? Right? You say amen and like, you know, he's looking at you like, what are we going to do now? Go to church, man, because like what? Like, like the direction we were heading, we're not doing that anymore. You know what I mean? And so that's what Boaz does. He prays for her, kind of breaks the tension in the room because Boaz was worthy and he was willing to wait. He was willing to wait. He, said, he essentially says, look, I understand why you're here and I'm interested in you as well, but I'm not gonna get ahead of God. Look, there's, like, I'm not even first in line. There's another family redeemer that's, that's ahead of me. Like, he has rights to redeem before I do. And Boaz refuses to advance the physical aspect of their relationship. Boaz is interested in Ruth, but he isn't so interested that he's willing to set aside God's will for his life. Let me say that again. He isn't so interested 
that he's willing to set aside God's will for his life. Some of you say, but pastor, you don't understand my situation. You don't understand what's going on. You don't understand financially, relationally. You know, like, like you know, how, you know, like we kind of are a family already. And, and, you know, maybe I don't understand your situation, but I would just ask you to trust God enough to follow his ways to lead into his will. Just trust him enough to follow his ways. When you desire God's blessing, we have to be willing to wait. If you wait on God, you will never be sorry and you will always be blessed. It'll happen. Sometimes it's a financial wait. Sometimes we have to wait financially. Sometimes it's a career wait. We have to wait in our career. Like what if Elimelech would have waited for God to restore his blessing in Bethlehem rather than move to Moab? Man, his story would have been different. Sometimes it is in intimacy and it's a sexual wait. Sometimes it is. But we settle too often for the fleeting pleasures of sin rather than enjoy the blessings of God. And most of the time, it's because we didn't wait. It's because we didn't do it in God's timing. Think about this. The the, the clearest example of this is the wedding night. Um, An engaged couple, a, a husband or a man and woman who are intended to be married, the night before their wedding, if they have sex, it's sin. Yes? That's what the Bible says. That's what the Bible says, and we're here standing on the word of God. So, so the night before they're married, it's sin. 24 hours later, that those same people, after they are married, can do the exact same thing, and, and where here it was sin, now it is a blessing and a gift from God used or, or given to create intimacy, create relationship, to be fun and exciting that God is going to bless. Here it's sin, and it brings a curse. Here it's a gift, and it brings a blessing. But when you refuse to wait, you are outside of God's will. A worthy man and a worthy woman is willing to wait. And, and I mean, think about it in, in other areas of your life. Like, like, think about it like in financial blessings. Like God says he gives good gifts and he gives the Holy Spirit, which is the best gift. So if God gives the Holy Spirit, which is the best gift, then, then we got to understand and assume that, that all gifts are from God. And so let's just say that God has a plan to to. Uh, work about some things to, to give you a boat, okay? Like, like he loves you and your family. He just wants to bless you. He's going to give you a nice, big, shiny, brand new boat, you know? And, um, and, and that's a part of God's plan for your life. But you really, really want a boat too. And, and like, man, you didn't know necessarily that that was out there. And so you really want this. And, and so you just go out and buy it. You go into a lot of debt to, to buy the boat, um, to take care, to take your families on vacation. And um, because you were unwilling to wait, because you, you indebted yourself, this nice shiny new boat has become a financial burden right it's a financial burden instead of a blessing that you and your family can enjoy because we too oftentimes refuse to wait a worthy man will wait and i'm way running out of time so i'm going to fly through this next few portions here number two a worthy person will maintain integrity A worthy person will maintain integrity. Verse 12. But while it's true, Boaz says, that I am one of your family redeemers, there's another man who is more closely related to you than I am. This guy has first dibs, this other guy. So he says, stay here tonight, and in the morning I will talk to him. If he refuses to redeem you very well, or if he is willing to redeem you very well, let him. But if he is not willing, then as surely as the Lord lives, I will redeem you myself. Now lie down here till morning. 
Boaz understands how the laws of redemption work, and he's not going to circumvent the laws of redemption. He's not going to circumvent the laws that God put in place because he is a man of integrity. Even though he wants to marry her, he says, we gotta go through the proper channels, and we have to do this God's way. We're not gonna look for a way to circumvent what God has designed. We are going to do this God's way. There's no shortcuts. Boaz says, I wanna marry you, but only if it's God's will. And if the laws of the land and the situational circumstances come up that, that prevent us from being married, then I'm just going to assume that it's God's will that we're not married because I trust him. So then he says, go to sleep. He knows that it's not safe for her to go out at night and go back. And, and he knows that it's not good for them to be together, but he doesn't, there in, in, in that place, but he doesn't berate her. He doesn't yell at her. He still fights to honor her integrity. And, you know, he says, you shouldn't have come here, but, but I'm not going to send you out to be hurt. Boaz is a worthy man. He maintains his integrity, and he fights to maintain Ruth's as well. Number three, a worthy person will lead well. Boaz does something here at the end of this chapter that at first glance seems totally out of left field. Early in the morning when Ruth is getting up before anybody else is awake to, to, to sneak back home so that people don't talk, Right? Um, Boaz loads her up with six scoops of barley. Some commentaries tell us that this is about 90 pounds worth of food. Verse 17, and, and she added when she was telling Naomi this, he gave me these six scoops of barley and said, don't go back to your mother-in-law empty-handed. So there are some commentaries that suggest that um, what Boaz is saying in this is he understands where all of this is coming from. He understands that this is coming from Naomi, that she's the mastermind. And so essentially what he's doing is he is saying to, to Naomi, Naomi, sweetheart, listen, I know that you're scared for your future. I know that you're worried about what happens next. And I know that you're worried about being cared for and provided for. But he's saying, don't ever forget that God is going to take care of you. And if he has to use me to take care of you, I will be God's vessel. Like RJ was saying, God gives to you so that he can give through you. Boaz is saying, like, like whatever happens, you're gonna be okay. If I marry her, you're gonna be okay. If I don't marry her, you're gonna be okay. And Boaz leads in a way that Elimelech never did. And it appears that this is the time that Naomi absolutely gets it. Because up until now, she's not made a whole lot of good decisions. I mean, she came back to Bethlehem, great, that was her good decision. But she still kind of keeps leaning back into some of those old habits and into some of those old ways. But after Boaz does this, her entire attitude changes. Because now she says to Ruth, look, stop. Let's wait. Let's be patient. And it's like... God's kindness and his kindness once again is leading her to that place of repentance. For some of you in this room, God has placed a mantle of leadership that you are wasting. You feel like leading means moving fast and taking charge, but real leadership, leading from a biblical perspective simply means following Christ. Just listen to him and follow him. Stand your feet all across this place. We're gonna close. I believe that Jesus is looking for worthy men and women in this generation. I believe he's looking for worthy men and women that he can bless, worthy men and women that will follow him. 
worthy men and women that will wait for him, worthy men and women that will maintain their integrity in every situation, worthy men and women that he can use to bring about his redemptive purposes here on earth, here in Hastings, here in your family, and here in your community. God is looking for worthy men and women. Listen to, to Ephesians chapter four, verse one. It says, lead a life worthy of your calling for you have been called by God. I believe that God is looking for worthy men and women who will allow the gospel to come alive inside of them so that God can show once again his powerful, gracious, invisible, mighty hand of providence. I believe that God is looking. So bow your heads, close your eyes, and look across this place. We hope you enjoyed today's message. If you would like to connect with us, or if you want more information about North Shore Church, please visit us at mynsag.com.